This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc hello everyone and welcome to slash film daily today is friday february 16th 2024 on today's episode of the show we're going to celebrate the 40th anniversary of footloose my name is ben pearson i'm an editor at slashfilm.com and i'm joined on today's episode by slash film editor bj colangelo hi 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 yeah all right, BJ, before we get going, I just wanted to drop a quick admin note here at the top of the show. We're not going to have an episode of Slash Film Daily on Monday because it is President's Day. Uh, so with that out of the way, uh, tomorrow actually marks the official 40th anniversary of Footloose. And I was just curious, let's kick things off by like, what what is your relationship to this movie? Oh, Footloose is an old favorite of mine. This is a movie that I watched as a child with my mom. She loved to do a double feature of Dirty Dancing and Footloose. That was like mother-daughter extravaganza day is watching both of those movies on like a random Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say like I'm I'm interested that you brought up Dirty Dancing immediately because it kind of feels like one of my big takeaways from this movie uh, first of all, I, I just watched it for the very first time, um, like a couple That's days ago. It's so wild to me how you've been able to escape it for this long, really. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, my mom is a big fan of this movie. I, I just like, it wasn't one of the VHS tapes that we owned in my house. And I think I just had absorbed so much of it through cultural osmosis that I never felt the need to actually just like sit down and rent it and watch it all the way through. But I finally corrected that this week or, or a few days ago anyway. Um, and uh yeah, the Dirty Dancing thing is interesting because one of my big big takeaways from watching this for the first time was like, I feel like Footloose walked so Dirty Dancing could run or something. Like, I don't think Dirty Dancing would exist without the success of Footloose. Do you, do you see those movies linked oh, I, 
agree completely. Uh, Footloose was such a big, because we have a lot of movies that we understand as like movie musicals. Like that's very much its own genre, but dance movies are an entirely different category because it can, it's a very expansive genre. It can be something like Footloose where it's about dancing, or it can be something like Step Up where dancing is the entire like purpose of narratives moving forward. Um, So it's a, it's a big umbrella. And I do think, that seeing the success of something like Footloose where dancing is at the core, but it's also teenagers using dance as a means of having like larger political discussions, which I think is also happening in Dirty Dancing. Like, yeah, that movie does not get to exist without Footloose. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we just have to acknowledge the kind of ridiculousness of the premise of Footloose. Like I, I knew about it. I knew that John Lithgow played this preacher and that dancing was forbidden in a town, uh, a small town where this, this story takes place. Uh, but just kind of seeing it play out and the seriousness with which all of these characters take the situation and, and um, I don't know, just like the fundamental premise of, of what's going on. Uh, I, I just kind of had to laugh as I was watching it. And I, I feel like people in the eighties probably were laughing at this too, but also like able to just like have a good time with this. So what has your experience been like, um, you know, dealing with like the, the uh, narrative, I guess, of this story? Well, so this is based on a real town. Um, That's a thing a lot of people don't necessarily know. But there was a small town in Oklahoma where you could not dance. It was considered sinful. Okay, so so I actually had no idea that this is true. So you're blowing my mind right now. I'm so glad to be the one to explain this to you. Um, So yeah, it does, like, it seems very ridiculous because I think if you are somebody who, you know, comes from a contemporary world or a progressive world, then you're like dancing really that that's the thing. Um, but that's, that's real. There are places, you know, around, you know, the, the country at the time that had these very repressive sort of rules and it is ridiculous. Like it's a ridiculous thing to think about. So to see somebody use that as a narrative structure, I think, I think it's very smart in a, in a number of ways is that one it is such a great example of pointing out like how stupid a lot of these sorts of rules are Um, because you could take Footloose and like push it into like book banning. People talk about Footloose all the time whenever there's book bannings where they're like, wow, did we just turn into the town from Footloose? So it's like, it's become like colloquial to mean other things, which I really, really like. But then, you know, it's also coming from people who worked on like fame. (laughs) So it's people that know how to like make a really good quality splashy movie out of it. And I think Mm -hmm. in the 80s, people were super into the ridiculousness of it. But then when the the story started coming out of like, no, this is kind of based on a real town. Like, obviously, the the movie is not but the the law is. Mm -hmm. Um, It was it was a reminder of Mm -hmm. like, oh, wow, we like to think of ourselves as these like progressive minded people and like, oh, we've come so far. But have we really? Yeah, that's a great point. And the the book banning thing is like immediately what I thought of when I was watching this, because that's unfortunately a thing that's still in the news right now in 2024, like against all odds, I guess. But uh, and there's actually like scenes in this movie where they talk about banning books and stuff as well. And that seems to be like a bridge too far for John Lithgow's character, even though, you know, he is the one who is like holding this town in an iron grip in the aftermath of this accident that, that took the life of uh, his son and um, I just, uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't help but feel like even though it does have a little bit of a ridiculous premise, there's still uh, vestiges of this story that like 
um, unfortunately trickle all the way, you know, decades later into 2024. So mm-hmm. uh, it weirdly feels like a, um, it, it, at the same time, it feels like a time capsule, but it also feels like, uh, you know, a bit of a predictive or or sort of um, timeless type of story in a way. So, um, I, I, you know, one of the things that I thought about, we don't, we're not going to do like a, a full on breakdown of this movie or anything. I'm just kind of tossing out big ideas mm-hmm. that I was thinking of, but um, like, at the end of this movie, when John Lithgow's character ends up sort of relenting and allowing the dance to happen because he's basically dressed down by his wife when she gives him that speech in the empty church. Uh, I was thinking like, you know, how would this movie be different if it happened today or it, how would the story be different if it, if it took place today? And I kind of feel like he would never relent because people like that actually have no shame anymore and are so dug in down. Yeah. That they would just like never admit that they made a mistake. So like this movie would not have the triumphant ending that it does because uh, I don't know, our world is like so much more polarized maybe, or, or the polarization is more pronounced or or on front street or whatever. So uh, I don't know. How do you think about like, you mentioned the, um, the characters being able to use dance as like a, a, way to uh, raise political points and stuff like that. What do you think about the, um, I don't know, the, the politics of Footloose or some of the conversations that these characters have in it? I So the thing that I have always really enjoyed about it is we refer to a lot of these movies on my teen podcast as like baby's first blank movies. And this is very much like baby's first radicalization movie where you're seeing teenagers realize like, hey, this is screwed up and we need to do something about it. And adults are not going to help us. So we have to take matters into our own hands, which I think is an important message to to receive at any time. But especially when you're a teenager, because as teenagers, this is when you're finally getting old enough to you understand like the true atrocities of the world and you are never more passionate and more defiant than when you're a teenager Mm -hmm. uh, because you don't have all of those limitations of like I might have to be quiet or I'll lose my job and not be able to feed my family Um, (laughs) so you know it's it's very different (laughs) during during your teenage years but especially in the 80s where Obviously, people were aware of the things that were happening around the world, but because something like social media doesn't exist, people are operating based off of what they are being presented through the news. You have to depend on what you're being given versus like today, we are all aware, like hyper aware Um maybe overwhelmingly aware of everything Mm -hmm. that's going on around us. So I feel like... um, kids today are already radicalized yeah. and they don't they don't need a footloose to to teach them to stand up for themselves yeah that's um, a great point <laughs> so i think in that regard like this does become like this you know teen movies are time capsule movies and they always are and footloose i feel like is very much a time capsule of teenage rebellion and political radicalization and I think there's something very charming in it. And it's one of those things where I don't like to look back at like, ah, back in my day, I wasn't even alive in the 80s. So this isn't even my day. But I, it's one of those things where it's like, life did feel a little bit better when like the worst thing that could happen to you is that your town doesn't let you dance. Like, could you Mm. imagine what a life that would be (laughs) versus today where it's like, oh, you're in kindergarten. Well, here's a school shooter drill. Enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Bleak, bleak stuff. Um, So, okay, let's take a break and then we'll come back. I have a few more uh, points that I wanted to mention about Footloose. So what do you think about the actual dancing in this movie, BJ? Like, when was the last time you've seen this? Is this movie, like, burned into your brain so much from childhood that you remember it pretty well? Or 
Oh, yeah. I remember this pretty well. I also watched it not that long ago because I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but Kevin Bacon did a commercial where he was recreating his like, I have too many feelings. I must dance in the barn scene. (laughs) And um, so then I rewatched Footloose and I was like, no, this this still really holds up. (laughs) The dancing in this is still very, very fun. Um, I like that it doesn't feel too choreographed um there's there's some kind of a disconnect that happens like unless you're doing a movie i don't know like center stage or something where like choreography is part of it um i like the freestyle feeling of dance better in dance movies and this is such a freestyle dance movie which i really really like um i also just love you know him teaching hewitt how to dance and like those scenes are so sweet because this movie also has a ridiculous soundtrack (laughs) yes unbelievable needle drops um but this is like this is such an infectious dance movie because it's one that you watch and you feel like you could actually do these moves yourself yeah 100 percent. yeah i was just looking at the soundtrack so you've got footloose by kenny loggins you've got holding out for a hero bonnie tyler you've got dancing in the streets shalimar um what else uh a bang your head from quiet riot hurt so good john mellencamp waiting for a girl like you from foreigner like yeah there's like uh this is obviously like, yeah. let's hear it for the boy by denise williams <laughs> oh of course yeah that's uh yeah like just a, a certified banger and i think that um the montage that you mentioned where uh, uh kevin bacon's character is teaching chris penn's character how to dance to let's hear it for the boy it's just such a joyous filmmaking. Like it, it just is yes. one of those things that like, it's a little cheesy, but I can't help but just like smile, you know, watch it with a gigantic smile on my face. It's just so the, the combination of that imagery and like the classic montage thing of him, like not having any rhythm whatsoever, but then paired with this music. And by the time it gets to the end of the song, he's, you know, doing these like pretty impressive dance moves. I was just like, man, this is what like we used to, we used to make things in this country, you know? So uh, anyway, just great stuff there. It um, really is. When when the, the brilliant, incomparable Jim Steinman passed away, RIP, um, I did mention holding up for a hero because holding up for anything that he wrote for Bonnie Tyler is the perfect needle drop. It doesn't matter what movie it's being used in, how it's being used, what genre the film, it's perfect. I don't care. (laughs) Um, But like the holding up for a hero scene in this is just magnificent. (laughs) Like it's (laughs) so good. This movie is just, it's, it's such a warm hug of a movie. It really is. I watched, uh, I think it was a GQ video with Kevin Bacon that came out, I think four years ago is what YouTube told me. Um, And I watched his little part where he was reminiscing about working on Footloose. And he said that he actually was not a trained dancer going into this. And that surprised me because I thought he was. And even though this movie has that kind of like shaggy quality to the dancing that you were talking about, um, I still thought that he was like, maybe that was why he was hired or something. Because this was like one of his big breakout roles like he was previous previously in animal house and friday the 13th and diner which is another movie that i still have not seen that i remember you recommending to me a while ago um but like this was the thing that really sort of shot kevin bacon into like true movie star status um and and i was just yeah kind of surprised to hear that like there actually was a lot of choreography here even though um you know some of the the moves and stuff feel uh more free-flowing than Mm -hmm. than i guess uh you would anticipate but like I don't know. There's also like not a black person in sight in this movie, really, nope. like outside of the uh, the opening <laughs> montage of dancing feet. So 
uh, that's a whole thing. And that's a sort of a weird vibe, uh, especially at the end of the, the movie where they have that, that big uh, party in the barn or whatever. And the, the big dance and um, <laughs> this one guy comes out and starts like break dancing and like another person's like doing the robot and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's like kind of impressive, but uh, you're a white guy. And um, it's just a weird, weird situation we got here. So uh, yeah, yeah, that, that in lies the, the core issue of many coming of age movies just in general is that they are extremely white um this one (laughs) (laughs) no no difference there (laughs) yeah yeah i also was thinking about it as uh like through the lens of you know this being a teen movie and um i I, like searched back through the archives of your podcast which is called this ends at prom for those of you who have not listened to it uh i was wondering if you guys had covered this yet and it looks like you have not uh or at least not officially maybe you've mentioned it in an episode here or there so we actually we did footloose um we we on our patreon we do what we call the Sadie Hawkins dance, which is when we talk about teen movies that are mostly boy led. Okay. Since this is a a male protagonist, we did it over there. Gotcha. um, Okay. Once the guy, one thing that you mentioned that I wanted to touch on is how this is, you know, the movie that makes Kevin Bacon become like a superstar. And for me, this operates under a rule we have on our podcast, which we call like the Danny Zuko rule, which is like when you watch Grease for the first time, it doesn't matter how you feel about that movie. The second you are introduced to John Travolta as Danny Zuko, your brain like lights up and you go, that is a superstar. Like that person is a superstar. And I think Kevin Bacon has that same energy in Footloose where, yeah. Yes, this is not his first movie. He obviously did, you know, Animal House and Friday the 13th, and he did, you know, Diner and all these other movies beforehand. But then you see him in Footloose and you're like, oh, that guy's got it. Like, that's Mm -hmm. the guy. And I love those moments. Like, even if the movie itself, like, doesn't stand the test of time, when you have those moments, you're just like, wow, that's magic on screen. And it's, it's a nice reminder of the magic of the movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was just looking up uh, some of the behind the scenes for Footloose, and it looks like um, Tom Cruise and Rob Lowe were both originally like sort of set up or, or being looked at to play the leads here. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the casting directors saw Tom Cruise dancing in uh, Risky Business and um, were like, hey, let's get that guy. But he was unavailable at the time. I kind of, this is the second movie in, I want to say a week or something where I was talking with uh, Chris on a recent episode about um, Streets of Fire and like how Tom Cruise apparently was either offered. I think he, if I remember right, he was offered the part uh, of the lead guy, Tom Cody in Streets of Fire. And we were just like, what a weird movie that would have been with Tom Cruise in the lead. (laughs) And I I feel like Tom Cruise in the lead of Footloose, it just would have been like a disaster or something. Like he's just such a bizarre human being that like (laughs) Kevin Bacon has that, um, you know, like a, a touch of humanity to him or or he actually feels like a real person. Whereas Tom Cruise, like uh, even in the 80s, even like right around this time, which would have been like around the time of Top Gun, just kind of had like this otherworldly thing to him. Um, and that's only become more pronounced as, as he's become, you know, a bigger superstar. But uh, I don't know, just something about everything in the casting just really works in this movie, I think. so. It really um, does. And I like that you brought up the Tom Cruise thing because something that I also know about this is that I know that Kevin Bacon was between either this or Christine, which I huh. think 
I think he would have been good in Christine. Don't get me wrong. I think he would have done a fantastic job. But like Keith Gordon is so synonymous with that role that it's like, I don't want to think of anybody else in that. So it's like everything worked out the way that it was supposed to. Kevin Bacon did Footloose, which is perfection. And Keith Gordon did Christine, which is a perfect performance for him. Like, that's perfect. We love it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I was a really big fan of the supporting cast in this movie. I thought uh, Sarah Jessica Parker as Rusty was really great. Um, she she has that that same sort of star quality that you're talking about where she really just like pops off the screen oh, yeah she's and great. then um chris penn man like he died what 2006 i think it was and yeah. i remember when he passed away and just thinking like oh man like this guy was in a lot of like adult movies that i saw where he played like hard characters you know like i i, mm-hmm. I, I think the first thing that i really came to know him from was um he plays like an informant character or something in Rush Hour in the first Rush Hour. Um, and then like he's in Corky Romano and he's in like, I you know, love him in Corky Romano so much. <laughs> like it's such good meta casting for him. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I kind of have like an image of what Chris, of who Chris Penn was, you know, as an actor in my mind. He was obviously in uh, Reservoir Dogs as well. Um, but like going back in time to this point in his career, this is unlike anything that I've ever seen him do and i thought he was really good in it and he's i thought so he's cute in it too like yeah. i can't handle how adorable he is when he's just trying so bad <laughs> to be a good dancer and he's not good <laughs> yeah um and yeah john lithgow and uh diane weist are really effective i thought um i actually really like uh, john laughlin as woody I, i'm not like a huge john laughlin guy I don't really know a ton about his filmography um, he's never really like popped for me as an actor before, but I thought he was really effective here as like the sort of like jacked guy who like is on Kevin Bacon's side and and sort of there's one part where he like basically like slams three guys together in a phone booth <laughs> who are who are trying to like mess with Kevin Bacon and his pals. And he's like, I, I got you, buddy. Like, you know, I'm gonna use my immense frame here to uh to just sort of like jack these guys up a little bit. So um anyway, he he made an impression on me. Um I think Lori Singer, she's the um the female lead of this movie and mm-hmm. she I, didn't really do that much for me. I don't know. Like, did you, are you a, a fan of what Lori Singer did in this movie? Like, am I on an Island thinking that maybe she's might be the weak link of this? What do you think? So I like Lori Singer's performance in this a lot. Um, she, you know, she was on fame, so she's genuinely like a very talented performer. Um, but I think that her role in this is, kind of underwritten so I think she's doing the best of what she has because for me I have always viewed this movie as like this is a vehicle for Ren McCormick like this mm-hmm. is Evan Bacon's movie um, and Lori is there because we have to have kind of this love story we have to have the connection to the Reverend that makes it personal but uh, she her character is a vehicle like is not a vehicle but like is a tool basically mm-hmm. to further along uh, Ren's story um, so I like her uh, in this but I also understand understand that like the movie doesn't give her a lot for it um and i do know that there were other people that were considered that like madonna was considered at one point which would have been a wild bit of stunt casting um haviland morris uh, at one point uh who people would know as she's uh caroline in 16 candles so i'm curious if like her 
continuing to be in like teen movies would have done something with her career and then um i think jennifer jason lee was also one which um i think she would have been very very fun too because jennifer jason lee is the correct decision in any movie um (laughs) (laughs) so no i do agree that i think that like Lori doesn't get you know she doesn't get as much to do to let her shine as some of the other characters. Yeah. Uh, have you ever seen the remake that came out in 2011? Craig Brewer, the director of Hustle and Flow, made a remake of Footloose, and I have never seen that. Have you ever seen that one? So I have seen it. Um, I am not the biggest fan of it. <laughs> um, it doesn't. It doesn't hit the way that I think it should, and. I feel very bad, but it's because the lead, Kenny Warmald, who is like a phenomenal dancer, like an unbelievably talented dancer. He is not a very strong actor. Mm. <laughs> um, and I know that when this was first announced, um, they were looking at Zac Efron and Chase Crawford. And I'm very sad that that is not the movie that we got. Uh, because oh, wow. I think I think it would have been a huge hit if it was one of them. But you when you have somebody as incredible as Kevin Bacon, um, f- following into those shoes is not an easy thing to do. The one thing this movie does get credit for is it does have a little bit more of a diverse cast. Not a lot, <laughs> not a lot more, but, mm-hmm. you know, some of it. Um, and Julianne Huff, this was like in that time period where she was really big on dancing with the stars. So they were like, we're going to put her in the Footloose remake and we're going to do rock of ages and we're just going to get her and put her in here and everything, which is like fine. Um, but all of those characters end up being the same character (laughs) (laughs) because that's just what it is. So (sighs) it's not great. The dancing is beautiful and it's very high energy and it's gorgeous. It's a great dance movie, but, uh, it is the 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 shadow cast from the original just completely eclipses this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not a huge Julian Huff fan like at all, so I'm probably going to be skipping this one. And Kevin Bacon even mentioned in that GQ video that I was talking about earlier, he was like, "Yeah, I know they remade it, and like the dancing in the new one is probably better than the dancing in you know the the one I was in." Um, because they specifically went out after dancers first. And I, I'm realizing now that like maybe that was his way of like, uh, you know, being nice Steve about it, but also, <laughs> yeah, but also like throwing a little shade at the the quality of the acting in the movie. So um, yeah, so there, there's that. Um, okay. Any other, I guess, like closing thoughts on Footloose or anything that sticks out to you that you wanted to mention about this movie before we wrap things up here? Uh, I mean, getting Kenny Loggins to do that track. like unreal <laughs> that's yeah. really that's really what i have i feel that about most kenny loggins uh tracks for movies though <laughs> yeah it's been like a week or something since i've seen this and there are still you know I'll, I'll go like a couple days and my brain will be cleared and then all of a sudden kenny loggins will just come roaring back into my mind <laughs> and i'll just like you know it'll be uh that full earworm kind of vibe so Um, Okay, actually, before we wrap up, I wanted to read a listener email. uh, And I thought I figured you would have some um, some thoughts on this subject, BJ. It's kind of a a downer, I'll warn you. But uh, Braden from Fort Worth, Texas writes, it seems all roads are leading to Madam Webb being a critical and financial failure, which I think is unfortunate for many reasons, chief among them how it might affect S.J. Clarkson's career. She's the director of the movie. Uh, this is Clarkson's second feature after 2010's Toast, and I wonder if Madam Webb will put her in the halls of quote-unquote director jail. 
There is a pattern in Hollywood. Kathy Yan directed Birds of Prey in 2020 to critical uh, success, but not financial success. And she's only directed an episode of Succession since then. Patty Jenkins directed Wonder Woman 1984 in 2020 to mixed results, critically and financially, although the pandemic was certainly a factor. Her announced movie Rogue Squadron seems less and like less and less likely to happen. Uh, Chloe Shaw directed Eternals in 2021 to mixed results. Ultimately, my question is, why does it seem like female blockbuster directors only get one shot, and if they miss, that's it? I know Hollywood is a business and all that, but the discrepancy between male directors getting second chances seems way higher than female directors. I guess this isn't breaking news, but more of the same, unfortunately. I think everyone deserves a second chance. Anyway, sorry for the long email. Love the pod, and I'm wishing you and the uh, Slash Film crew well. So thank you, Braden, for that uh, email. And um, yeah, I just want to sort of like give you the floor on that one, BJ, because I'm guessing this is something you've thought a lot about. Oh, this is something that I feel uh, quite passionately about, and especially right now with Madam Web, because uh, the question that is being posed here, the answer is in the question. Um, yes, this is a thing that happens. Uh, women are not given the space or grace to fail, and men are consistently allowed to fail upward or mediocre their way upward. Um, I have no intention of shaming the screenwriters, uh, Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless, uh, because writing these movies are not easy. You have all of the studio notes, you have production notes, you have all these things going on. So what the script looked like, you know, when they, you know, went into this versus how it ended up, we have no idea. But the fact that they wrote Dracula Untold, The Last Witch Hunter, Gods of Egypt, Power Rangers, and Morbius before this, and were allowed to continue writing and were never put in director's jail or screenwriter jail is a testament to the way that we allow men to have failures, to have mediocre performances, and no one cares. But when women fail, the message that so many people in positions of power seem to take away from is, well, I guess that means women can't do this, instead Mm -hmm. of looking at the multitude of reasons why something might not have worked. And so I'm very much hoping that S.J. Clarkson does not end up in director jail, but instead, you know, refocuses and gets to go back to working on films that are probably more in line with something that, uh, you know, she she's more familiar with. Maybe she gets to do a, a TV series. Um, you know, she was working on a bunch of episodes of Made for Love, and that was a great show. Um, so maybe, Yeah, she's got she's had like an incredible TV career so far. Yeah, so maybe she'll get to like be a showrunner on something that she's really, really passionate about. Because we also don't know the circumstances of how she was hired for this. Like, is this something she was really, really passionate about? Or is she a hired gun director? Like, we don't know these things. Mm-hmm. And so that's what then becomes very frustrating whenever, you know, women, especially in the blockbuster or superhero sphere, end up in, you know, director's jail. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't happen because now I think people are a lot more aware of it and have a tendency to hold studios and production houses, like hold them to task when this does happen to be like, why aren't you hiring this person? They're obviously great. And we can see the misogyny of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hoping that means it will not happen. But if it does happen, I will not be surprised because that's showbiz, baby. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it, it feels like over the past few years, it has become more of a, like more light has been shined on that topic. And I think it's because a lot of the female directors who have been put in director's jail Uh, have come out and actually like spoken out about it and then like told people about their experiences and talked about how unfair and how, you know, 
much of a garbage decision that was for for them to basically be, be like blocked out of the industry for a long time. Um, I'm actually going to put a couple links to some articles where they have like direct quotes from people like Amy Heckerling and uh, Patty Jenkins and, and people along those lines who have uh, Mimi Leader, I think is another one too. Um, so uh, the Guardian wrote about this a few years ago, um, a website called Stylist wrote about this as well. Uh, and then I also noticed uh, I was, this uh, email inspired me to try to dig into the numbers a little bit. And then I looked up and found that last year, the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative took a look at the top 1,600 films from 2007 to 2022 and performed the largest and most rigorous analysis of inclusion in film that's ever been performed. And they were primarily looking at stats for characters who appeared in movies, but they also studied behind the camera stuff too. And they found that in 2022, 8.8% of top grossing film directors were women, which is less than a percentage point higher than the 8% that we had back in 2008. So like to your earlier point, BJ, of like, it seems like we've come a long way in some aspects of our culture. It seems like that sometimes, but like when you really drill down into the data, the the increases are not nearly as much as we sort of like hope they should be. So uh, oh, yeah. I just wanted to mention and, that. And and if people are, you know, interested at all, and if you're chronically online, like I am, there are so many incredible discussions happening on social media on both like TikTok and X, formerly known as Twitter, um, where people are talking about how studios are straight up owning up to the fact that they're rolling back on diversity initiatives that were put in in 2020 following the murder of George Floyd and how they're not following up on any of that. And mm-hmm. it's it's awful. Like it's really it's really bleak and sad. Um, and it's really interesting to me how, you know, they'll use the flowery language of well, we're just trying to appeal to as wide of an audience as possible and how that always ends up meaning cis white straight male conservative leaning <laughs> yeah yeah I, I guess I, I don't really have like a great takeaway from that but thank you Braden, for writing in and um and hopefully some of these resources that i'll provide in the show notes can point you in, in the right direction to some actual quotes from people who have been affected by this and uh the um annenberg uh, inclusion initiative data I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well if you want to like dig into different aspects um in front of the camera and stuff too so uh, yeah, that's going to do it for today's episode of the show. You can find more about Footloose at SlashFilm.com. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, normally, no episode this coming Monday, uh, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, please subscribe to our newsletter. There is a link for that in the show notes. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help us out a lot. Tell your friends about the show. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week.